Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And uh, this week we're talking about uh, developing cyber competitions at the University of Texas San Antonio. I'm joined by Dwayne Williams, who's uh, on the team there that has helped put together the uh, first CCDC uh, 15 years ago now. If you uh, just turned on your radio right now um, or turned on iHeartRadio streaming uh, on your app on your phone and uh, wanted to uh, hear uh, all about some of the background and history, uh, this will go up on our website, www.cybertalkradio.com, on Tuesday, December the 2nd. Uh, It will also go out to all the podcasting apps all across the Internet uh, where you can hear that background. In this half of the program, we're going to kind of deep dive in if you... um, are thinking about starting a National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition team, uh, or if you uh, have a team at your university and uh, want some uh, insights from someone who's been around for the the whole history of the program um, and the whole history of the competition, we're uh, going to ask Dwayne a whole bunch of questions, so hopefully you can uh, continue to increase the level of the uh, difficulty. We're going to get... We're going to turn the dial really up on the uh, this over over the years because we do need to keep improving our cybersecurity, um, and it really is better today than it was ten years ago, and it's way better than when the the first internet uh, boom happened. Uh, many of the the things out there that uh, were infecting um, all of our computers and attacks that were hitting all of our server infrastructure, those things are fixed, uh, but there is still much more to go and. Um, uh, one, uh, just uh, from a, a historical timeline perspective, um, I'd like to, to give uh, our folks in the cybersecurity side of the world, like we need to continually be making things better, but we also shouldn't beat ourselves up too bad. I mean, we're really kind of uh, 50 years all the way back to the beginning of the Internet. This year is the 50th anniversary of, of ARPANET, which was um, the, the beginning of the Internet. Uh, but it's really kind of 20 years with a commercial internet now. So the late 90s, maybe 25 years if you want to go back uh, really to the start. But we're, this is still a pretty new industry uh, where we connect computers together on untrusted networks. Before that, we were connecting computers together pretty much on trusted networks, or we were trusting the other people. Um, and if you go look at, at safety in uh, other industries, uh, whether it's the airlines or bridge building or building construction or the automobile, I mean, we uh, we didn't have uh, seat belts in cars. Well, I mean, they might have been in the car when I was a kid, but we certainly didn't wear them. Um, I mean, I'm, I certainly stood up in the back of a pickup truck um, surfing while driving probably on a freeway um, at 70 miles an hour. It doesn't sound super safe, but I'm certain I probably did that. Nowadays, we wouldn't think about those sorts of things. So uh, it's not just cybersecurity that we're getting better, safer, and figuring this stuff out. It's it's everywhere across the, the world. Um, and on the seatbelt ones, there's a real uh, interesting uh, piece. And this is kind of with your, your cybersecurity programs as well. You can think about this. So uh, people didn't start wearing seatbelts in their cars until the audible beep drove them crazy. So we we had all these safety um, bull, uh, billboards to encourage people to wear seatbelts and to buckle up. They even passed laws requiring you to wear a seatbelt or they'll issue you a ticket. It wasn't until the uh, the automobile safety folks, um, they then they put on the little blinky light. Blinky light still did not. People just ignored the blinking light or they put a little piece of black tape over the blinking light. And it wasn't until that the uh, the seatbelt would just beep, 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 beep over and over until you plug that seatbelt in that people actually started wearing it. So um, everyone knew it was good for you, but it's just getting those behaviors to change. So the same thing in, in your cybersecurity programs. If you're rolling it out, you can ask people nicely. You can train them. Uh, but frankly, until it's it's 
where either more annoying for them to not follow the security practices um, than it is to follow them, uh, they, they're probably not going to follow them. Uh, so uh, just things to think about as you're trying to roll out and drive behavior change. Uh, I wish there was a better way than being annoying, but uh, that's proven out to be, um, especially on the safety and security side of things, the most effective way to get people to do that is by making it annoying. So uh, with that, Dwayne, we'll, we'll get back into uh, talking about cybersecurity here. So uh, you'd mentioned in the, the cyber defense competition, I heard the word Solaris, I heard Linux, um, I heard networking. Uh, so what are kind of the, the, the all the different uh, types of technology that a, a cyber defense competition team is expected to, to have some skills in? So the, there's a lot of different technologies and it, it does vary year to year because we have to keep the challenge new for the students. Obviously, we can't run the same kind of network each year. So one of the things we do every year at the beginning of our season is we decide what the network's going to look like for the national championship. And we try to model a real industry and we try to go find the technologies that are used in that industry. Uh, we've done an electrical utility company. We did a prison system. Uh, we've done an online pharmacy. Been a lot of different scenarios that we've done. But as we look at those industries, we try to take a look at what applications and operating systems they're using. Is that primarily a Linux system that you're going to see, a Windows system? Uh, what kind of user desktops do they have? What sort of applications? Are there certain technologies that are absolutely core and critical to that? And our challenge has always been to find those that fit in the environment that we can actually get a hold of. Prison system, for example, is really tough. But there is an open source prison management system out there. Interesting. And we actually grab that one. We use that built prisoner records and things along those lines. So you'll see uh, within the environment every year, you'll see different flavors of Windows. Uh, you'll see different flavors of Linux. You'll see Solaris x86, for example. Uh, of course, FreeBSD, NetBSD, et cetera. And then networking technologies. Uh, there's always firewalls, switches uh, that they have to manage and maintain. So they have to look at that as well as other defensive technologies like uh, IPS systems. And I'm sure Wi-Fi is sneaking into this thing now or not quite yet. Yeah, not quite yet. We had Wi-Fi uh, a couple of scenarios that we use it for. The difficulty with Wi-Fi is because the key component for us is it's a competition. I've got to keep that yeah. playing field as level as possible, which means i got to keep other people out. So once I start throwing a Wi-Fi signal into the air, if somebody's wandering by and really wants to mess with it, that gives them an opportunity to do so. Oh, uh, interesting. The, ne the networks that we're building are, are really wide open and, and difficult to lock down and secure. So if we threw a Wi-Fi access point into each team's network, uh, there's a real risk that somebody outside the event could get in and, and cause havoc. And that's what we've got to try to avoid. So I want to build a level playing field because we are, we are determining who that national champion is going to be. Um, and the prestige that goes with that title is pretty significant at this point now. Uh, they get recruited very, very heavily. So our goal is to really only employ technologies that I can manage, maintain within our little closed loop network. Yeah. And so as you, you say, as a, like we'll talk about the prison system here. So this is one that's been in the, the past. Um, so I've got a database, it sounds like, that's got um, patient, um, prisoner records yep. and maybe um, patient records if they've been in the infirmary or whatever right. else. And so there's different data stores. Um, so they need to, the, the teams need to know database technology then as well. Absolutely. So we'll have um, different database technologies that would be associated with different um, types of services. So an e-commerce site, for example, invariably will have a database attached to it. Uh, any kind of HR system will have personnel records attached to it. Medical systems will have medical data attached to it. So that's one of the components you will always see is, is just as you would in a real business, you're going to have a back-end database somewhere, uh, usually more than one. Yeah. And so um, each year, so you said competition runs, the season runs from February and through till April. When do the teams find out um, what types of technology will be in the scenario? Um, is it, do you guys publish it out 
right at the end of the season or right at the very start, or how does that all work? Yeah, so that's a great question. It does depend on the level. Usually in the qualifiers, they'll get a little bit of a heads up, usually a couple of weeks or so ahead of time. Uh, they'll get a, a, a packet that tells them what the network's going to look like for their qualifying event. Uh, each of the qualifying events has a different network. Each of the regionals has a different network, and the national championship's different. So there's a lot of work that goes into building the different challenges. But uh, the students usually get a couple of weeks at least, usually maybe even up to a month on the qualifier level. Regionals, it's usually a couple of weeks. The national championship, they find out the morning they walk in the door. Wow. So when they walk in the door and register for that first day of the national championship, I hand them a team packet that has their what they're going to you know face in the room, if you will. Uh, and they've got about an hour to familiarize themselves with it before we let them in the room and let them start poking at stuff. So that's there's a reason we do that, and it's to make it the challenge harder. I don't want students coming in uh, and preparing for specific technologies. I want them to learn the basics and be able to adapt to any challenge that I present to them. So we do that on purpose simply to make it harder for them. Yeah, so I, I could end up walking in and having an, uh, an AIX system or a, a, Absolutely. a VAX VMS, depending. If we're going back in healthcare, I'll bet there's healthcare records still stored in VAX systems all over the place. And, uh, yeah, it, some of those, it might even be difficult to Google. Like, if you were going to try to figure out, like, if you didn't have any experience with some tech system to even find user manuals or the rest of the stuff, you could... Uh, if you you have general Unix skills, you can mess around on a Vax to a certain extent, but not <laughs> right. that well. Um, yeah, but so as I, I think through some of these things, it's it kind of interesting, but it's also the real life scenario. I mean, Absolutely. if you're working in the the technology department for a healthcare provider, like there's that Vax system that sits over in the corner that no one looks at. They try not to touch it too much, but in the event that a red team starts going after it, someone's going to have to figure out how to defend the darn thing. Absolutely, and you, and you hear stories throughout the tech industry. Uh, you know, the novel system that was walled up inside of a, you know, a closet that had been, been closed off forever. But uh, it's, it's interesting. We have discussions with students every year. They'll come up and say, well, nobody runs Windows 7 anymore. Nobody does this. Nobody does that. And I say, well, in your vast industry experience, tell me, have you never seen that? And I say, yeah, I went to my doctor's office last week and they're running Windows 7. So oh. it's out there. That's one of the reasons we pull those older technologies in. Uh, to let the students know that when you get out into the quote-unquote real world, you're not just going to see the latest and greatest of everything. You're going to get some older systems. You're going to get some legacy gear. Oh, for sure. I mean, in, in um, my, my professional side of things, we do cybersecurity for small business, and we have customers still um, that are running Windows 95 and Windows 98 on some computers. And, I mean, for a lot of the, the technology we put out now, uh, I can't even get stuff to build and compile on those. So, uh, we give them some guidelines on how to do things, and then if their web browser works well enough, they can access some of our technology through a web browser there. But it's even hard to get uh, a web stack on some of those. I mean, it's a, we we go back to realizing that TCP/IP barely shipped with with Windows ninety five. Um, there were even third party TCP/IP libraries that you could install on Windows ninety five to get a better, more compatible TCP/IP stack back in the day. So. I mean, the default network protocol in that was was NetBuoy yeah. um, and NetBIOS. Yeah, and uh, so we've we've evolved quite a bit, but all those things are still out there, and they're still running all over the place. Right, absolutely. And that, and as we don't necessarily go that far back. No, it's uh, good. But we'll usually go back to, say, you know Windows 7 or at least a couple of generations old on a Linux system or a Solar system, uh, simply because that's the reality of the, the real world. For sure, yeah. No, I've been, and I, I took a, the, the CCIE lab exam uh, 20 plus years ago and uh so like in in your cyber defense competition where you've got that break in the middle of the day the, the ccie lab exam you you have a whole day to do it and then you have a break over lunch hour and i, I made it to the the lunch hour break and i had a big smile on my face and i was super relaxed and everyone's like well what's wrong with you and i was like well 
Um, I've worked through everything I know how to do. Um, and I had 68 points. You needed 80 or 85 or something to pass. And I knew there was no way I, I had, I didn't know enough to get the next one. So like by lunch, I was done with my exam. Like I was, I was not passing the lab. Um, and so I had a relaxed smile on my face uh, there, but I mean, I think it's, it sounds kind of very similar with the, the CCDC and, and I had, I didn't study correctly for some of the stuff I was assuming. Um, this is a tech that you probably don't use, but a, a DLSW. So this was the way you could, uh, emulate uh, IBM 3270 terminals over a TCP IP network. Um, you might not have rolled that out in the competition yet, but yeah, I, di I didn't study that. I was figuring this is not going to be in the exam. Like there, that's technology that's getting deprecated even 20 years ago. I was wrong. There was like at least 12 points worth of it on there, and I had not studied that stuff at all. Right. And, and we'll have a couple of challenges every year that the students would not anticipate, and that's, again, by design. But uh, the vast majority of the network, there's something they'll be able to do with it. Yeah. So, for example, the modern Windows operating systems, let's say from 2003 up on the server side, if you know how to get your way around 2008, you could get through 2016, you could get yeah. through 2012, 2012 R2. And so the students certainly, uh, we always try to get them to focus on the basics. If you understand what to do, don't necessarily learn the exact syntax for a particular platform, but understand how access lists work, for example. If I understand the concept behind an access list, how a firewall filters traffic, I can learn the syntax on almost any platform as long as I really understand that core concept. And that's the goal there is if you understand the core concepts coming in, uh, you got access to Google, you can look up a lot of stuff. If we have a vendor technology like Palo Alto inside the environment, they typically provide the user's manual and on-site subject matter experts that'll help the kids out. But uh, that's the goal is to get those basic concepts down. If you know those solid, you're going to do better. Yeah. So so teams kind of train for fundamentals. Have you had in, in any of the, the competitions where uh, one of the teams just, I mean, they go through whatever day one and they realize, like I did my lab exam, like that we just had not studied, we weren't ready, the red team has owned us, and like we, we throw the towel in effectively in the match? Uh, well, every year I have conversations with students at the end of day one. They're like, we're done. We, we just got clobbered. Yeah. Um, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's okay. Pick your head up. Here's what you're going to look at at day two. Uh, just focus on getting one service up. Even if you feel like you can't do anything else, focus on that one service. Once you've got it, move on to the second one. So quit trying to do every single thing at every point in time. Learn how to tackle each of these individually. And so we've never had a team walk out in the national championship. Um, we've always been able to rein them back in and say, look, no matter how bad it looks, you got to realize everybody feels this way. Yeah. Everybody feels like they just got their clock cleaned. Uh, so focus on what you can do. Focus on what you can fix. Don't sweat the other stuff so much. Uh, don't let the tasks overwhelm you. So uh, from a, a tools perspective available to me as a, a participant in the, the competition, um, am I able to run packet captures on the network and observe what the red team is doing and, and try to send someone off to analyze that? Yeah, absolutely. So within the student's network itself, once it basically reaches their perimeter, uh, they've got access to do anything in there. So we provide them with things like network taps. They've got systems they can configure as sniffers, uh, IDS, IPS. They're responsible for any actions they take. So if they configure an IPS, it's super aggressive, and they start blocking traffic coming in or going out, um, they might break the scoring system. They might lose some points there, uh, but that's their prerogative. So they're absolutely able to download things and use things like Wireshark to look at packet captures. If they want to set up a snort box to do their own IDS or IPS, they're absolutely free to do that. We also have some really generous vendors at Lonus Technologies. Uh, they want the students to see their technology, to play with it, to use it under these circumstances, to see how effective it is. Yeah. So you have vendors like Palo Alto and FireEye, uh, Raytheon that is Forcepoint, a couple others. They, they bring those technologies to the event. They want the students to work with them. Yeah, well, and, and the students want to work with them because it's back to the real-world skills here again. Absolutely. Uh, 
yeah, you, you want them working with all the, the latest and greatest and things that are going to be out there um, in real businesses. So um, as, as you, you kind of uh, go through on this, so in the um, Cyber Patriot, uh, my understanding is that teams like Match Starts, they've got five minutes to kind of run their, their opening playbook before the, the red team gets to hit the start button. Do you guys give the blue team a five-minute head start in CCDC? It, it depends the level. So usually the qualifiers, there might be a little bit of a head start um, in terms of the teams. Regionals, kind of the same way. But in most cases now, and in the national championship, you've never gotten a head start. Uh, you basically walk into the network at the same time that the red team does. Uh, the red team has no advanced knowledge, so they get a list of uh, ranges of IP addresses that the targets are on, and that's all they get. So they've got to do recon and everything else before they can do any real attacks. Uh, but the students, when they walk in, uh, it's live. They've inherited a live system. It's fully functional. It's up. It's working. Uh, it would score perfectly if nobody else touched it through the rest of the, the competition. <laughs> that never happens, of course. Yeah, that's uh, not the Internet. That's not the Internet. But when they walk in, it's a fully functional system. We also give them recovery and restore points. So you can come back and say, I've completely destroyed my DNS server. I'm going to roll back to my last known good backup and throw it back up and see where we can go from there. Yeah. And then so for... for um, competitors in there so my i'm a, a network security and computer security guy so say you gave me a, a dns server that was running some piece of dns software that i hated am i allowed to like export my zone files and stand up a new dns server serving the same thing providing the requests out to the scoring system but i could switch the whole tech stack out yeah it, it depends on the scenario sometimes we do allow that it'll be part of the game rules uh, we'll tell you which stacks you could switch out or if you could migrate from, say, IIS to Apache or vice versa. So sometimes we do allow that. Sometimes we dictate it. Uh, one of the, the most enjoyable competitions we had from our perspective was we required the students to uh, go through a reorganization where they were purchased. And so they did a name change and they migrated their DNS from a Microsoft solution to uh, a bind solution off of a Linux box. And there were some teams that didn't get up for the entire first day. They didn't understand what it would take to migrate things and to change things throughout. So yeah, we do do that on occasion. Uh, sometimes if the student's requesting something that I know will break part of the competition later, we'll have to not allow that. But they're certainly allowed to upgrade it uh, within a version stack. They're certainly allowed to patch it or try to secure it as best they can. And then uh, I'm in on the, the Linux side of stuff. Um, do you allow um, custom kernels to get compiled? Can they like go all the way down and, and put in a, a kernel that's got some better memory handling or other things in there if they, they want to go that way and reboot their boxes? Absolutely. If they've got the expertise to do it and the time, they're welcome to do it. Uh, I can't say that I've seen that actually happen in 15 years yeah. because there's so much other stuff going on. You don't have time to wait for that kernel to compile yeah. on the system that we gave you and then implement it. But uh, we have had teams that come in, they'll write scripts on the fly. They'll write um, systems that they bring into the competition on, from this, you know, inside the room, they're building their own. Uh, one year we asked him to set up a chat utility and, and some kid decided he would write his own chat utility in Java did it within three hours inside the room and it worked it wasn't pretty but it works so. yeah so that's an interesting one are, are the teams allowed to bring in any like a, a a 10k text file or like is there something that they're allowed to bring into the systems when they sit down at the competition what are, what are they allowed to go with at the start there yeah so obviously being a, an electronic competition we have to be real careful about what's allowed and what's not so within the room you can bring in any print, printed material you want and I usually make the offer if you have a large series of ebooks or PDFs that you want to bring into the environment, you send them to me and I'll host them inside the environment so you can have access to them. We don't have to kill a bunch of trees printing things yeah. out. Um, as far as other types of software, it has to be open source uh, or freeware or trialware that's available to any team. 
any team has to have the same kind of access to it. So if you wrote a series of scripts that you made available uh, to the internet on GitHub and it was out for six months, you'd still be able to use it in the event. Interesting. Uh, but we don't allow them to bring in a USB key full of uh, super secret special tools. Um, all internet traffic going in and out of certainly the national championship is filtered by proxy. Uh, so I watch what's coming in and what's going out just to make sure that there's no, it's as level as playing field as possible. That's the entire goal. Yeah. Uh, so in, in, if I publish some scripts up on GitHub, do you provide a list to all the other competitors? Here's the things that people have published up, or if it's just on GitHub for six months, it's good. Nope. If it's just on, on GitHub for six months, it's good. So oh, that's I will, interesting. So the other teams have to do some recon absolutely. and crawling ahead of competition to find out who's putting stuff up and where to see what's available to them. I like it. Absolutely. This and they simulating do. the real world again. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, now that these these teams are prepared, so and they're going to follow all the tips you've just shared with them. Um, for the the ones that are reaching nationals and, and things that are going, how has this impacted the lives of some of those students? So it's had a tremendous impact on the lives of some of these students. We've seen a lot of success stories. We've had uh, students come out of the national championship, go to a company at a great job offer, uh, and then bypass six months of training and get put in charge of an active incident because they're that good. Uh, we had to, to implement a rule within the national championship that companies couldn't attempt to hire students during the actual competition hours. Uh, we had a situation where a student got cornered in the break room by two companies and they were throwing competing job offers at them. And the student's like, I got to get back to my team. I just came to get a soda. Yeah. Uh, so the impact has been just phenomenal. Um, we have a really great return rate of students that used to compete, but now come to support the event, both at a local or national level. So uh, several of our red team members are former students. Uh, they've gone on to great careers at a lot of different organizations. Um, some of them are security tool authors. Some of them are book authors. Uh, you've seen a lot of return on that, and the success has been tremendous. Yeah, so in, in some of the other collegiate sports, uh, you've got uh, Alabama's been doing pretty good at football recently. You've, you've got uh, Duke kind of historically at basketball. Is there anyone that is, is out there on the National Collegiate National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition that has built a kind of the, one of those dynasty level programs? Yeah, there's actually a couple that we look at. And so there's a few that you're going to see come to the national championship almost every year out of the region. Uh, Rochester Institute of Technology is one. Um, University of Central Florida has a really strong program. Uh, they won the national championship three times in a row. They're very, very strong. Uh, the University of Virginia is actually building a really good team right now. And it's interesting that the the cyber competition sports do follow the actual sports, you know, the NCAA type sports is you have great programs, but it really does come down to the students you've got competing. Yeah. So you'll see those teams that, you know, three, four, five years, I'll see those same students come back and those students are just top notch. And then as they move on, the program stays strong, but they just don't quite have the same team that they did two, three, four years ago. So we're seeing that kind of thing happen across the country. Yeah, I know. I've, I've had on um, some folks from uh, different universities uh, that uh, have actually started putting scouting and recruiting teams together. They go look at the national cyber patriot level competition in high school, and they're um, working to get those kids to apply to their universities and offering figuring out is there a way they can guide them into some academic scholarship because it's still not available really for the the sports style scholarships at this point but um, I mean NCAA out there um, uh, boys and girls can both play cyber defense uh, boys and girls cannot both play football um, so right. let's uh, let's get out there and offer scholarships uh, in sports that are, are very uh, gender balanced uh, which this one is absolutely yeah so uh, where, where does this go from here? I mean, do you guys have goals as a, a program? What does success look like over the next 15 years? I'd, I'd like to keep growing the participation, obviously. There's a number of schools that we haven't reached within the United States that we'd love to get to. Uh, the next step for us is international. 
There's a lot of legal and technical issues involved with running competitions like this overseas. We haven't solved them all yet, which is one of the reasons we haven't launched. But uh, my ultimate goal is to have a world championship. Yeah. I'd like to see a CCDC world event, just like we got a World Series, uh, where it's truly international. I bring in teams from across the globe, uh, and we could see how well they do against each other. Yeah, a future Olympic sport. I hope yeah, so. there we'll you see. go. That's the, the the really big goal. Yeah, it could be there. Gold medals in cyber defense. I like it. So uh, thank you very much, Dwayne, for uh, joining us this week. I guess we've got a little bit of time here to wrap up the end. So your CISSP. Correct. How long ago did you, you get that one? I've had that one for coming up on 20 years now. So it's when, when you time. got it, did they give you the nice uh, wood plaque or the little like college graduation style folio? Where It was the folio. Absolutely. The folio, yep. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've talked about that with some other guests because um, it went pretty quickly for me. It used to get like a lacquered wood plaque, and then it went to the folio, and then it went to you got a paper and a do not bend envelope, and then eventually now I think they let you digitally download your CISSP certificate when you pass. So You can print it at home. Yeah, yeah. it's print at home kit, or yeah. yeah, just have the digital one. Well, again, yeah, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on CyberTalk Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about developing cyber games. Um, so parents out there, these are games you're, you should want your kids playing. Um, so they could play them in, all the way down to middle school and high school. We'll talk maybe a little bit about Cyber Patriot as well. Uh, but I'm joined uh, this week by Dwayne Williams, the Associate Director at the University of Texas San Antonio Center for Infrastructure Assurance and Security. You academic folks have the longest titles. We do. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for uh, joining us today, Dwayne. Not at all. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah. So uh, games, and we'll we'll dive in a, a little bit and give folks a, a tease on this, but um, I, I want to say the first eSport in college was the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. So you think, or is there was somebody else out there with a competitive eSports league between the universities before the, the CCDC? There really wasn't anything like an esports league before CCDC came along. So yeah. we're, we're coming into our 15th season, the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. So if you look at the landscape 15 years ago, there were a lot of competitions, but they were point in time type events. You'd have one event that have a few schools on the East Coast or West Coast, or you have some larger capture the flag type competitions. But nobody had really gone after the college market and said, I want to build a program and a competition where schools can compare their own information assurance and cybersecurity programs against each other. So really, CCDC was the first one we saw like that. Yeah. So NCAA out there. So let's uh, figure out how to make this a officially sanctioned NCAA sport. And, and so the school can offer scholarships and all the rest of those fun things to CCDC competitors. They probably get academic scholarships sometimes today, but there's no sports scholarship for it yet. So this is the host. This is not the opinion of a UTSA or anybody else here, but uh, I would love to see um, universities able to offer scholarships for this and, and have it really treated like an athletic competition. I'd love to go to ESPN and a little drop-down menu. Instead of NCAAF, we could see NCAAC, and I could see my cybersecurity competition there and teams being ranked because uh, if you, you look out there and uh, listeners at the the landscape of the world, there's um, a few thousand jobs in the NFL. There's um, a million jobs and maybe more than a million in cybersecurity if you really think about all of the risk management and everything else tied to all technology systems. So we should be encouraging more kids to play um, cyber games and learn cybersecurity skills. Football's great for the team building and teamwork, but um, you're not likely to get a career in football. Um, it's certainly not as likely as you would be to get one in cybersecurity. Yeah, right now, cybersecurity is a zero unemployment field. 
Yeah. If you want a job in cybersecurity, there are people that will knock down your door to try to hire you. And we've had that same vision. We'd love to get on ESPN. I mean, did I cover a spelling bee? Why couldn't you put CCDC on the you know ESPN 8, the Ocho? Yeah. I'd love to see it. I love it. Okay. So there's a, one of this. So we're going to talk a bunch more about this, but I want to go back to a little bit of your background. Um, this is one we like to share with all of our listeners is how the heck did you find your way into cybersecurity? So you were, you were born, came out, and then right out of the womb immediately decided to become a cybersecurity professional? Yeah, absolutely not. I actually um, grew up overseas a little bit. My dad worked for Phillips Petroleum Company, so I went to high school in Stavanger, Norway, of all places. I uh, ended up going to Baylor University because it was the university my older brother was going to. But while I was there, I initially started majoring in psychology and decided this is not for me. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there that I didn't, didn't really connect with. I went into the computer science department and said, this is my home. Uh, my sophomore year, I got into the ROTC program there, uh, continued on with a computer science degree, started getting more and more interested in programming and security. Uh, when I entered the Air Force, my first job was programming, but my second was information assurance. So I led, I was chief of the computer security department or computer engineering for countermeasures for the 609th Information Warfare Squadron. That's really how it got started, uh, was that experience in the Air Force, dealing with live systems, dealing with live attacks. I took that, went into a, consult, a commercial consulting background, did that for a number of years, met Dr. Greg White, who's our center director out at UTSA, uh, and then went out to a research position there uh, about 17 years ago. Yeah, and, and so what made you make the leap from industry to academia? The thing that really drove me to make that leap between industry and academia was, was timing. Uh, it was the right time. SecureLogix was the company I was working for at the time, which is still here in San Antonio. Um, was really revamping their consulting department. And they said, hey, we, we love what you guys are doing, but we're getting away from network security. Uh, we're a telecommunications security company. We want you guys to become more sales engineers. About that same time, Dr. White was helping the center start up and he said, we need researchers. We need people that have real operational experience, not just academics. If you're interested, we've got some job openings. I took a look at what they had, said, hey, this looks like it's gonna be a lot of fun. Okay, so then, so you joined UTSA fifteen year or seven, sorry, seventeen years ago, and then fifteen years ago the the CCDC started. So how did, how did that come about? I right. guess in your first couple of years there. Yeah, so the first couple of years we actually weren't doing competitions at all. Uh, we were doing a lot of work with the Secret Service. We were doing a lot of work with states and communities. In two thousand and four, uh, another group got an NSF grant. And the whole point of that grant was to bring academics together to see, would it be possible to create something that would let colleges and universities compare their information assurance and cybersecurity programs against each other? Is there some way we could do some sort of competition? Now, academics are really good at a lot of things, but they tend to want to do committees. So they got together, started talking, started forming committees. Our boss was there, Dr. Greg White, and said, oh, hang on a minute, if we do committees, there's not gonna be anything that'll happen in five years. Let's go ahead and do something. So he pulled a couple of schools uh, together, all from Texas, and said, if we build something, will you guys come? Will you help us build it? Will we just see if this is possible? They said yes. He came back, started putting it together. He put a, uh, a master's student on it. Uh, we took a look at it, said, yeah, it's not quite going to be where we need it to be. So he tossed the tasking to us, and that's where we came up with the concept for the Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. And, and so then that rolled out in the first year, how many schools participated? So we had five. The very first CCDC event ever was uh, held at the 1604 campus of UTSA back in 2005. We had five schools from Texas that competed. And uh, from then it's grown from there. So we had 308 schools compete in last year's event. 
That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's uh, some great growth. And for frequent listeners of the program, we've had a, a number of um, students and uh, other folks involved in Cyber Patriot on, and which is the, the high school and now middle school level uh, of the Salesian Cyber Defense Competition. So similar format at the CCDC, and we'll, um, Dwayne and I will talk some more about kind of how that works, how competition goes here as, as the program evolves. But if you um, have a middle schooler or a high school student um, that is interested in this type of stuff, they can start playing Cyber Patriot in middle school and high school. And if your schools do not have one and you are in our 1200 WA listening area, please reach out to the Cyber Texas Foundation. Uh, they will help your school get one set up and going. If you're outside this area, you can uh, go to the National Cyber Patriot website and they have uh, programs uh, in place across the nation to help um, teams roll out. But um, yeah, I mean, this year, I think looking at the Cyber Patriot numbers now, there's about thirty to 40,000 kids playing Cyber Patriot in middle school and high school this year. There's a million playing football still, so we got a little ways to go. We do, but absolutely, yeah. The growth in Cyber Patriot has been phenomenal. They're in their 12th year now. Um, we were actually one of the groups that helped create that program. So I was at the foundational meetings. I helped contribute to that initial design. So it's been really exciting to see. We went to that first national event they had. There were eight schools. Yeah. And I think they have 6,800 schools signed up for this or 6,800 teams signed up for this season. So the growth in that has just been exponential. It's fantastic to see. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you, you hinted a little bit there, but who runs the infrastructure for Cyber Patriot competitions? So right now, the uh, online infrastructure was actually created and is managed by the CIS out at UTSA. So we have a group of folks there. Uh, we have a lead developer. Uh, his name's Dr. Keith Harrison. So he's really the main architect behind it. But we build the virtual machines that the students compete on. We build the server infrastructure for all of the online rounds. And then we also help them run their national championship event. Yeah. So you guys are intimately familiar with the scale and growth of that. And they keep calling back every year and they go, hey, Dwayne, uh, this year we've got 6,800 teams. And said, I think last year there were about 5,000 teams. Absolutely. Yeah. So you guys keep adding, you guys will keep adding VMs. Absolutely. So as many as we need, we can absolutely scale it. And one thing about the technology is it, it doesn't really have an issue with scalability. It's one of the reasons we designed it that way. Yeah. Uh, we learned some lessons when we did CCDC. So we took those and applied them to Cyber Patriot and said, if you really want to go both not only nationwide, but international, you've got to design it this way and run it this way. It's been really successful. Yeah, because that's a, so do you have any um, colleges from outside the U.S. that participate in CCDC? No, right now CCDC is limited to U.S. colleges. So we US. do have some teams from Hawaii and Alaska, uh, but otherwise it's just within the United just States and territories. Yeah, because Cyber Patriot is available um, to uh, uh, globally. Um, I know for certain on some of the, uh, the military bases overseas, they have U.S. high schools and then those folks are running teams i don't know if any of our allied partners um maybe there are some now high schools that are are non kind of military related overseas high schools in cyber patriot this year yeah absolutely so one of the things that the afa folks did uh the air force association that that owns and manages the cyber patriot program is they did create sister competition so they have cyber titan that does canadian schools they have cyber um Centurion, which handles UK, Cyber Taipan, for example, which handles Australia, New Zealand. So they are absolutely pushing out across the globe, reaching out to as many students as they can. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was uh, didn't aware that they had whole separate leagues. Absolutely. At some point, we've got to have a, like a real Cyber Patriot World Championship, like the Little League World Series. We need to get together with a Cyber World Series. Um, and get all those different champions from each of the countries together. Yeah, absolutely. If we can get somebody to put the bill for the, the plane tickets, we should bring them in and have them compete. Yeah, well, if we can do it for baseball, we should be able to do it for cyber. I'm going to keep agree. harping on this here on the radio until someone steps up and funds it. So so uh, outside uh, on the, the CCDC, um, so if, if I'm um, a 
student? How do I go find out if my school has a team? How do I figure out how to join the team? Any of those things? Sure. So the best way to find out whether or not your school has a team is to look for a computer security club or association at your university. Most of the time, that's where those teams are formed, where they practice, uh, where they build JV and varsity type players. So that's the best place to look. If you don't have one, Go to your computer science faculty, go to your um, information assurance faculty in the business school, for example, and ask them, do I have one? If you don't get any answers from any of them, you can always email us. You go to nccdc.org, check the contact page. My information's on there. Uh, Kevin Archer, who's our technical director, his information's on there. Reach out to us. We'll help you figure out whether or not you have a team. If you don't, you can always start one. Now, CCDC is limited in that every school can only have one team. So it's just like NCAA football. You got one school, one team. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and we're discussing the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition and uh, cyber sports uh, at the university level here. I'm joined uh, by Dwayne Williams uh, from the Center for Infrastructure Assurance and Security at the University of Texas San Antonio. Uh, they started this competition about 15 years ago. If you uh, just turned your radio on right now and wanted to hear uh, our intro and opener, this will go uh, up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, December 3rd. Uh, it'll be up there with all of our past episodes. And uh, Dwayne's mentioned uh, Dr. White a couple of times. We've had him on the program as well. Uh, we've also had Dr. Nicole Beebe on uh, from the University of Texas, San Antonio. So you can listen uh, to uh, that via any of the podcasting services out there. If you don't want to look at our website, if you have a favorite podcasting service you you use, um, you, all of the CyberTalk Radio episodes should be there. Um, if you find a podcasting service uh, that does not list our program or doesn't have correct show titles or guest definitions or descriptions, uh, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter at CyberTalk Radio. Uh, let us know. We will fix that and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. There are two ways to get a t-shirt. One is to be on the program. Two is to find a podcast service where our content is not out there cleanly um, and the podcasting stuff across the internet you would think it was simple easy and clean we're pretty decent technologists here and i'm going to tell you it's a lot of messy plumbing uh, so Dwayne, we were uh, just talking a little bit about if how to find out if my university has one. So you said there are over 300 teams now in the Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition this last year that's correct yeah we had 308 universities so okay. 308 teams yeah and so if, if i think i feel like there's more than 5,000 universities. Or is this open to four-year schools, two-year schools, yeah, it's anybody? A, it's open to two- and four-year accredited institutions. So okay. If you're a degree-granting institution, you're eligible to play. Okay. Uh, so there, there are a lot of colleges and universities that we're still reaching out to. Yeah. Uh, the issue there is it takes a lot of time and energy to field the team, to have a team practice, to have them come to competitions, even the virtual ones. Uh, and so some of the schools can't quite feel that. We also have some very strict entry requirements and eligibility requirements for students. You have to be a full-time student. For example, you can't um, come in at the end of your senior year and play unless you've been playing before. So there are some specific rules that yeah. do preclude some schools from being able to play. It's following many of the, the normal sports competition rules. So this Absolutely. is back to my little opener NCAA. If you happen to be listening, they're doing all the things to try to get registered really as a sport. So even if not on purpose, maybe they're doing them on accident. Yeah, some of it was uh, intentional and that we were looking at what it would take. Uh, and it, when you design a national program like this, you have to take care of some of those issues. And since they've already been taken care of in a lot of at NCAA sports, it made sense to mirror some of that as we develop developed our own competition system. Potentially a lot of growth out there. But you said so fielding a team. Um, so when, when is is the actual in season for for the collegiate cyber defense competition? Right. So the season itself actually isn't very long. You have a lot of 
qualifying events that will happen in the February timeframe. Usually those are virtualized as you narrow the field down into the regional events. Uh, we have nine regions across the country where students will come in and play. Uh, those teams are typically the regional events will have eight to 10 teams per region. Uh, some of the regions we've got 40 or 50 teams that get narrowed down. Some of them we have 16 to 20 uh, that get into that regional event. The top team from each regional comes to the national championship each year. So we've had it uh, in San Antonio as well as Orlando. This year it will be in Orlando and we're really working hard to bring it back to San Antonio uh, in 2021. So the season kind of goes from February through May? February, February through April. April. So okay. the national championship is always in April. Most of the regional events are in March. Uh, there's a couple of reasons we have to do that. One, if you look at a, an academic calendar, students yeah. are graduating at the beginning of May. They're taking finals. Uh, if you don't catch them before then, you can't catch them during finals or graduation, and then they push off to the end and they've graduated and moved on. Okay. Yeah. So kind of basically it's spring sports schedule. Correct. Yeah, pretty close to it anyways. Yeah. Now there are teams that will certainly train year-round. So yeah. there are teams that will come out of the national championship or come out of the season. They'll start working over the summer. They'll work through the fall and into the spring. So it has become a year-round effort for a lot of these students because it's their interest and it's a skill set they're trying to develop to get hired. So that's the nice thing about this competition is it's the closest thing we can mirror to actually working at a small business. Uh, you get all the typical things you would see there. So these students are training year-round for it. Yeah, because this is one like where, I mean, I think everyone that's participating in the CCDC plans on, quote, going pro. Like when they graduate from university, they're going to go get a job in cybersecurity, just like the football players. A lot of them dream about going pro. But if you're at a Division two school, you're probably not going to end up in the NFL. But if you, even if you're at a Division two college, if you're anyone that's on a CCDC team and you're working hard at this throughout university, chances are there's a good job out there for you at the end of this. Absolutely, yeah. If you come through CCDC, that's one of the things that we've been really pleasantly surprised to see. If I've had uh, headhunters and recruiters come to me and say, hey, as far as our corporate entities are concerned, if they see CCDC on a student's resume, they'll get bumped up into the interview list automatically. So they understand the value, the, the exercise that the students put in, the skill sets that they're developing, not only technical skills, but soft skills. So the soft skills that the students develop are things like teamwork, communication, uh, time management, all of those are absolutely critical. You can't just be a technical genius and do well at the competition. You have to be able to do all of those things together as a team uh, in order to do well. Yeah. So for, for the, the team on the competition, how many uh, players play in a match? So we have eight players. And you can have up to 12 on your roster, so we give them a chance to substitute. They can't substitute during an event, but between events. So they know, for example, if they go from qualifiers to regionals to nationals, uh, if they have to swap a member in, they can, but they have to declare their team of 12 at the beginning of the season. And then at any given CCDC event, you can have up to eight players on the field, if you will, at any given time. Okay. And, and so do those players have positions like a, a, another sport? Yeah, actually, we've seen teams really do specialize in terms of having positions assigned. So there is a team captain. There's always a team captain uh, that does most of the communication with competition organizers, uh, handle things like protests and scoring disputes and that sort of nature. But within the team, the teams will self-organize. So you'll see them assign positions like this is our, our Windows girl and this is our firewall guy uh, and this is our Linux girl and this person handles any Solaris boxes we might see. So the students will absolutely organize into specific missions. Now, as far as the competition goes, we don't require them to do that. That's a self-organization thing. So organically, they've grown that ability to try to figure out what people's skills and strengths are and put them in the right positions. 
Okay, so um, you mentioned a few technologies, and I think uh, after the break here, we can dive a little bit more uh, and give folks a guide. If you wanted to get a cyber team up and going, um, what skills and technologies should they learn? What sort of things should they be studying? What things should the university have programs to teach? Because it's, it's certainly easier for uh, students, um, if they're learning the cybersecurity and cyber defense and they want to be in the competition, to have actual academic classes about this and not make it just a, a club. So uh, we'll... Listeners, we'll be going into a bottom-of-the-hour break for news, traffic, and weather update here um, in just a few more minutes, and then Dwayne and I can kind of deep dive in that second half of the program into uh, what is really putting together a training schedule look like and some of your recommendations for those teams out there. Uh, so as you said, you, you mentioned, um, I guess we've got a, a few uh, different technologies you talked about there. Um, for the universities that are, are participating in it now, um, how did they find out about the program? What have, you, what have you heard on kind of how it's grown from five schools up to 300? Right. In terms of growth, what we've seen is it's kind of been a word of mouth organic thing. Uh, we don't have a huge budget to do advertising. We don't have a huge budget to do, obviously, TV commercials or anything along those lines. But uh, academics are really good about talking to each other. Yeah. So we go to a couple of key conferences. We go to the Black Hat Conference and advertise. So we'll be at both Black Hat USA, uh, Black Hat EU here coming up in December. Uh, we'll go to the Sissy Conference, or the Hicks Conference, so some academic-specific conferences. We'll put a table out. We'll have some flyers, and we'll just talk to people about the program. What are the benefits, the advantages of playing? Uh, what does it do for your students? What does it do for your academic program? So we've seen a lot of growth in that. One of the nice uh, other components of that is we do have other academic partners. So those nine regions that I mentioned, those are run by other universities that work with us as partnerships. Uh, so the faculty and staff that are there, as well as some of the students, get experience building, running, managing networks that they couldn't pick up in any other environment. So one of the really key benefits of this program is it does really augment the educational component. So you get a lot of theoretical education in college. You don't necessarily get as much hands-on as you'd like to get. That's what CCDC provides is that opportunity to get true hands-on experience with the exact same technologies and capabilities you're going to see when you exit college and go into the workforce. Yeah. And so uh, on from a match, so Cyber Patriot, I guess the, the matches are six hours long, I believe, uh, for uh, the Collegiate Cyber Defense. How long does match start and end time go? Yeah, it depends. Usually the qualifiers are eight to ten hours. Okay. Uh, the regional events are usually a total of, say, 16 or so. Uh, the national championship is between 16 and 20 hours long, usually broken up over two days. Same thing with the regionals. They'll break it into a two-day event. And, and so I guess it's um, some increase in kind of complexity and difficulty, which you would expect at the, the college level. So you finish up day one. I'm sure those teams go back in, into a, a brainstorming room um, and do a lot of planning for what are they going to do to attack on day two. Yeah, absolutely. So they'll, they'll walk out of the room on day one pretty much shell-shocked. Yeah. Uh, but they'll rally. They'll get together. They'll figure out what we should do or what we shouldn't do. Um, we'll see a lot of them as we're running around working on the competition in the middle of the night. I'll walk down the hall at 3 a.m. and see teams sitting around a table talking to each other, getting ready for the next day. And I'll tell them, look, you need your sleep. Yeah. You're going to make some bad decisions. You don't get some sleep out of this. But uh, absolutely, they take that that night to kind of coalesce and get back together and figure out where do we go from here. Yeah. And, and so uh, as uh, you guys have been um, kind of running this and administering it, um, it been like similar scoring each year. So like if I think about golf, right, like golfers score much better than now than they used to historically on things. How have you seen the evolution um, over the last 15 years on the, the CCDC evolve? 
So the, the scoring methodology actually remarkably hasn't changed that much. We had the luck, I guess, or the foresight to pick a really good formula. So the way they score the teams with any CCDC event uh, is you have positive and negative points made up of different activities. So we'll give them a small business network and tell them these are the critical services you've got to maintain. You got an e-commerce site, you might have a DNS server, mail server, web server. These are all the services that have to be available to the internet, just like a real business would. Um, throughout the competition, uh, we'll test those services to make sure they're up and running and functional. If they are, they get points. Uh, if they're not and they're down for too long, we start pulling points away from them. They get penalties. We call them service level agreement violations. So just like you'd lose money if your e-comm site was down, we take points away from you. They can also pick up points uh, responding to business tasks. Business tasks we call injects. They can be really simple, like add this user, change this user's password. They can be much more complex. I need to stand up a new e-commerce solution, migrate everything from unsecure to secure web sessions, uh, or answer the question, should we accept Bitcoin as a payment on our e-commerce site? So those are positive points they can gain. The other section they can get is by responding to what we call our orange team. So that's a, sim a group of humans that simulates the user and remote user activity that a company is going to see. So they're making phone calls. My website's down. I can't get this product, et cetera. And then the last section they got to really work on is defending against the red team. The red team is a team of professionals that simulates that hacker threat across the internet. Uh, and their goal, the red team, is to break into the what we call blue teams or the students' networks, uh, poke around, see what they can degrade, uh, and the students will lose points every time the red team is successful in breaking into their system. So that scoring methodology has actually stayed pretty static for the last 15 years. Yeah, and so are, are teams scoring more points now, or is like the red team like turned up the dial to 11 and then they use more sophisticated and complicated attacks? Yeah, both actually. So both. Uh, the blue teams are the blue teams are the students are so much better than they were 15 years ago. The teams that came to the national championship 14, 15 years ago wouldn't even qualify now. The teams are so much better. Uh, the red team's also gotten a lot better. We have some really talented individuals. If you're familiar with some of those tools and technologies, um, the guys that write for Metasploit, some of them are on a red team. Uh, the guy that wrote Armitage, uh, works for Cobalt, created Cobalt Strike, works for an on red team. So they do crazy stuff. Like they developed uh, their own network driver last year that they put on student systems that had a completely built-in command and control system and backdoor uh, at the low level, you know, below the root level, below kernel level. So the red team absolutely dials it up from year to year, but uh, so do the students. So it's really interesting to watch that, you know, arms escalation between the blue teams and the red teams in terms of who's going to win. Now, I will say the red team always wins. Yeah. That's the thing about attack is you only got to be right once. Yep. Yeah. Is it the, I think the whole history of Black Hat captured the flag. I don't think there's ever been a CTF that the flag has not been captured. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's, and that's what simulates the reality of being in the real world is you've got to be right. If you're on defense, which is what we have the students do, you got to be right 100% of the time. And it's just almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, the red team, like I said, they got to be right once. So you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm joined by Dwayne Williams. We're talking about uh, cyber competitions in college. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here for a news, traffic, and weather update, uh, and then we'll be back. And if you're uh, coaching or you're the captain of a cyber uh, defense team, uh, you're going to want to hear his uh, tips and thoughts on uh, how you can uh, organize your practices and do things to maybe uh, make your team uh, one of the ones that ends up at those national finals next year.